Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to give a status update on the Biden administration. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Okay, y'all. So here's an update on the COP26, the Global Climate Conference, that is now over. Countries came together at the end of two weeks, 14 days, to agree to a number of things like phasing down coal. But unfortunately, it's not phasing out coal completely, but it's still a pretty significant step. Burn, baby, burn. Oh, okay, Joe Manchin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, China and the U.S. announced that they will work together to bring down emissions. They are the two biggest emitters in the world, and China did not even attend the conference. It was good to see that they are at least talking about it, though. Hopefully that turns into some meaningful action down the line. Uh, Carbon trading rules have finally been created for international carbon trading, which should bring clarity to companies and further help reduce emissions. More than 100 countries have agreed to slash methane emissions. It's not a binding pledge, but it's quite significant, especially as this was the first time methane's really been talked about and mentioned at a climate summit like this one. And there was also a similar deal about deforestation that also resulted from this conference. There's like a lot that happened here, Terrell. So Mm. I I really encourage all our viewers to read uh, more into it. Long story short, though, there's a lot of good things that happened. But there's also a lot of anger that this conference did not go far enough. I agree with that. But of course you do. Well, I do. But I also (laughs) feel that conferences like this signal where the world is going next. And I think that it's a much better place than not having the conference at all. Yeah, sounds like less beef is in our future. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this being said, if all countries follow their pledges and plans, we will be on course to warm to 1.8 degrees uh, Celsius, which is quite less than what the prediction is now. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, like that's kind of a big if it's not like it's still yet to be seen if countries will actually fall through and everything goes kind of correctly with that. I don't know, Terrell, um, do you have any thoughts about this conference now that it's over? No, not not honestly. Um, I think your take on it gives a great signal to where the world is going. And because we're going to talk about this um, at the top of the episode, one of Biden's biggest pledges was to bring America back to the flo- the forefront of multilateralism and global the global um, community. So it's nice to see us take that seat, use it in a way that brings people together, not pushes people apart. And also mm-hmm. is a pledge to understanding that there there are things that need to be done um, in a multinational way. So on Monday, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke announced his bid for the Texas gubernatorial race, seeking the highest office in his home state after losing his 2018 Texas Senate race by 2.6% to sitting Republican Senator Ted Cruz. And losing oh. in the primary. And yes, and dropping <laughs> out of the 2020 Democratic presidential primary race. Um, Robert Francis O'Rourke, popularly known as Beto, is known for his fierce advocacy for Texans as the congressman from El Paso and even more so on full display in 2018, where he traversed the state of Texas, visiting every single one of the 254 counties in the second largest state in the union. In a video announcing his run, as well as in an interview following its release, Congressman O'Rourke presented his candidacy as a corrective action against the hard-right, extremist, and divisive policies of the state's Republican Party, led by incumbent Governor Greg Abbott. Quote, I want to make sure we get past the smallness and the divisiveness of Greg Abbott, O'Rourke said in an interview following his first campaign event. 
Even though Texas had continued to trend more blue over the past several cycles, with O'Rourke's 2018 Senate run being the closest statewide race in decades, he faces a steep hill in his pursuit of an office not held by a Democrat since 1995. Terrell, what are your general thoughts on this? So the Democrats are going to lose Texas. Um, (laughs) Oof. (laughs) I mean, he hasn't won statewide. Sorry, I had to do some just quick pulling of where the numbers were in the is that, is that yet? Is that more because Texas lo- isn't there yet? He or lost is it to because Ted of him? Cruz. Yes, but Texas he, is still he, a red state. He lost to Ted Cruz. But Texas is still a red state. Ted Cruz's poll numbers going into that election were further down than Donald Trump's. We know you can't trust the polls. <laughs> Says you. Well, I guess I guess my question is, is there a difference between, is it the candidate that lost that race, or is it because Texas wasn't there yet? I would argue it's the candidate. I don't necessarily think Texas is super gung-ho about but O'Rourke. And granted, I'm saying this as a person who has only visited, to, visited the state um, and has found joy there. But when you look at... When you look at polling for where it is, so 2018, Republicans were up 12 points. 2012, they were up 16 points. 2016, up nine. And then the last election, we'll say roughly six points. So obviously, it's continued to trend. What sucks here is in that state, the new electoral map is going to be rough. It's designed in a way that overwhelmingly disenfranchises individuals in urban areas but even beyond that i think there's just there needs to be this understanding too of if you're running for governor of texas you're not running a national campaign while i like Beto o'rourke while i think he has amazing policies he does tend to lean into and focus on a lot bigger national conversations where that's just not the governor's job how annoyed were we to see governor little go down to texas because of the border. How annoyed are we to see all of these other pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that to say, I, I'm i excited for him. I just don't inherently see him on a path to winning. There was a TikTok that actually came out right after his announcement um, that highlighted his stance on guns that he mentioned during the primaries and how mm-hmm. um, far left he is in a state that is very prideful of being a Lone Star state that cares about its guns. And how that message is going to very quickly be a thorn in his side. So those are my thoughts. I'm going to take the slightly more optimistic approach here. Um, (laughs) Someone had to, right? I'm going to go, and I don't think there's really any kind of, actually, I'm not really sure what the conventional wisdom is here. But like, I'm going to take the approach of... Uh, I don't think Bader should have run for president, to be honest, but I agree with that. I think it was more Texas, not fully blue yet um, when he ran against Ted Cruz in 2018. And yeah, he got close, but he was still like three points off. And I think that it's going to be hard for him to win against Greg Abbott, but I don't necessarily think he's the wrong candidate. Is he the perfect candidate? I don't know. I, I, I think Beto, though, is pretty good at at making the conversation and um, his messaging kind of about a bigger idea than necessarily small policy implications. So we'll Fair. see how that plays out, but but I'm going to be slightly more optimistic. And if I can just add one last piece, I think this plays into the overall issue that the Democrats have. You saw it very clearly in this administration as well. Um, they lack state 
level individuals to run on these big ticket campaigns. Like Beto was an amazing legislator um, for Texas and has done some amazing things there. However, because of his feeling that he needed to run and be a part of the national conversation, he's also placed himself in this arena where um, he's going to have a different level of tech. People are going to think more about that when it comes to Texas versus someone like a Stacey Abrams who has been in the grassroots, who understands Texas, who has also done some of the door-to-door things that could potentially have a different kind of lead. Those are the the spaces and areas where I just think this party is going to continue to struggle with because when you look at the top and when you look at leadership, we lack it because we don't own state legislatures. We don't give our um, grassroots individuals the opportunity to be on the big stage, and it's just causing problems across the board. Let's go around the world in about a minute since you guys keep calling me out on that. It's close. Um, as Americans continue to forget that they are not the only country on the planet and the real implications of this pandemic, Turkish people are hurting as inflation continues to grip the country. The Turkish government estimates that um, they've seen a rise in prices around 20% in October compared to a year earlier. Just to give some comparison, the U.S. saw a rise of about 6%, and you have people marching on capitals and losing their natural mind. (laughs) Um, On Monday, American journalist Danny Finster was released from a Myanmar prison. Um, Finster was charged with dissemination of information that could be harmful to the military. And lastly, debris from an anti-satellite test conducted by Russia has left the International Space Station on high alert. Um, Several individuals are calling out against um, Russia as they continue these more risky tests that have left a lot of debris in the low orbit of the Earth. Um, which is God damn Russia. <laughs> Jesus. Which is in line with <laughs> God. and can very easily cause harm to um, the International Space Station. Russia's like the thorn in the world side. Good lord. It amongst other spots. Oh, thank God. <laughs> and we'll be right back. So for today's main segment, Terrell and I are going to talk about giving the Biden administration a status update. One quick disclaimer, we are not experts and probably shouldn't give them a status update, but we have some thoughts. I was going to say, I completely disagree with that. I studied the American people. I studied them enough to give a status update. I don't know about you. So maybe I'm going to say the same, but maybe you should be on this podcast. Maybe that's what we're getting at here. (laughs) Well, the reason why we're doing this is because, you know, Biden's been taking a lot of heat lately, even though he's uh, passed the uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal, which is a trillion dollars in spending um, for roads and bridges, which mm-hmm. is like the first time in how many decades? <laughs> yeah. So um, which is a very it's, low it's, bar. It's the largest it's the largest infrastructure investment since literally the, the highway system in the 50s, I believe. Eisenhower. But yet, like his poll numbers are around, depending on where you look, 43%, 41% um, mm-hmm. disapproval ratings. And a lot of people say that that Biden isn't doing his job um, in terms of like the economy and the COVID-19 pandemic and all that stuff. So yeah. uh, we kind of started having offline conversations about this, whereas like- As we tend to do. Like, wait a moment, like, 
like why is all there this heat for Biden? Like, yeah, the elections went bad in the um for the off year elections in Virginia a couple weeks ago and whatnot, but like his agenda is getting there. And it's we're just waiting for a reconciliation package that I'm confident is gonna pass. I've been confident that it would, that something would pass for the last six months of it being negotiated. I just think they need to do it. Um the bipartisan infrastructure deal was signed uh, uh, a few days ago. Um, and that's in law now. That's great. And like, it's just kind of interesting that he's in such a bad news cycle. And, um, so, you know, Terrell, I just want to kind of like start asking you, like have we talked about right now. Yeah, seriously. I have our tangents right now. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we're both going to have some tangents about, uh, what's going on with Kamala Harris later. Mm. Actually, no, that's not my tangent. Oh, interesting. Um, But I do think you set it up well. So something that we've talked about that I think is important context here in understanding the totality of the Biden-Harris administration, which also needs to be thought of, of it's not just the Biden administration. He has made a concerted effort to say that he is the president who is ushering in the new generation of politicians. He is very much branding his administration as both his and his vice presidents, ensuring that um, the vice president is at every major speech, at every major signing, um, has some really tall tasks, currently doing a, or just finished a European tour. Um, But what's important about that and why I think that context matters is I do think Biden learned a little bit from the Obama administration and the ills that the Democratic Party saw under the Obama, Obama administration where every major legislative win was automatically tethered to the president. Mm -hmm. It was Obamacare. It was never the Affordable Care Act. It was rescuing the automotive industry as a president, not as a party. And what we're seeing and what the numbers have shown a little bit is more people are associating these wins with the Democratic Party. If that's going to be good by midterms, we'll talk about that later. So when you start diving into the numbers and seeing people say that, They disapprove of his handling of the economy and they disapprove of this and they disapprove of that. You also see that more people associate the passage of the child tax credit or their last stimulus check to the Democratic Party as a whole in Congress, which is very significant for understanding and and recognizing how do you rate a president that is um, very similar to his inaugural um, speech or his winning speech when the... um, election was called is really stepping into a stride by passing off some of that spotlight to other entities that deserve it. Yeah. And I, I, I guess like some of what we've talked about before is like compared to where Biden's at now, it hasn't even been a year since he's been president. And mm-hmm. um, like, it's hard to find a comparison between him and Trump at this stage in the presidency, but <laughs> I mean, Biden is in a completely different position than Trump is. And, you know, I I was reading an article in the Washington Post that basically talked about like how Trump uh, liked to define how he was doing by like the stock market and where unemployment was. And Biden, you know, there's other things going on in the economy, obviously. But I mean, the Biden stock market's better it's at all-time highs and, and it's it also not Trump. a good metric of how good an economy is it's it's not a it's not really a good metric of how a president's doing either also true um, um although his unemployment jobs are they're 
in a decent spot as well. I, They're better than Trump's was when he left. Yes. <laughs> Significantly. So like all of this backlash is really um, kind of, it came, it, I, I felt like it really started with the Virginia elections. And then a lot of polls came out saying that Americans are like, ah, we associate with all these infrastructure stuff with the party, not you, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not looking after me. Uh, I don't like any of the stuff they're doing, even though I love literally everything he's doing in terms of like the infrastructure plan. So would you say this is a detriment or a contribution from the way media is marketing this administration and where we're at? Do you think this is a recoilization from the president who used to tweet about everything? Every time you turn on a news cycle, there's a controversy. Now that you have the president that is uh, more status quo that is getting jobs done that isn't really making headlines are are the American people just so tuned out to this is how politics were literally four and a half years ago and we were okay with it that there hasn't been a a, a shift in the mindset to understand that it, we're in a good spot I mean it depends who you ask if we're in a good spot or not True. and I just mean that like there are real frustrations and annoyances out there. Like COVID-19 is still a thing. I mean, it's going to be hard for everyone to accept that it's going to be a thing for the next few years. Honestly, I, we're just going to have to accept risks at this point. And that's, I've kind of accepted that. So get I'm vaccinated. A little, this I'm won't a be a problem. Desensitized to like what's happening with it, but um, get vaccinated. It won't be a problem. Yeah. But um, there's also like inflation worries. I get the inflation worries. Like, Nobody wants to see their freaking Apple go up a couple dollars. Like, I get it. 6% or whatever it has been. Tell Turkey that. But part of why it's going up is because everybody is buying these physical goods like we never have before. And it is due to the pandemic. And it, it, it's going to last a little bit longer. Also, we've had a huge shift in supply chain. Like, it, one yes. big thing that has to be owned here is because of the pandemic, more people started using Amazons and different packaging exactly. companies exactly and the so supply card chain isn't made for that yeah cardboard was not up to stock to deal with a random increase in packages more people have moved to things like help myself included like hello fresh uh mm -hmm. home chef all of those mm -hmm. food deliveries that require a different part of the supply chain that just didn't exist um but also there are safety precautions that this administration has put in place from the COVID 19 standpoint which just to give a caveat, I would give the administration like a solid A minus on it um, that has slowed down some of our cargo ships. And you can be frustrated with that all you want, but that is a, a priority that this administration was very clear they were coming in on. Of mm -hmm. We want to get back to normal as soon as we can, but we can't get back to normal until there are safeguards in place yeah. to ensure that that normalcy is continuous, not just random one offs. Yeah. And I mean, if we want to dive into the inflation thing real quick, like. A lot of it is because we're buying a lot of physical goods more than what the supply chain is used to yes. um, just all the year round um, because we're sitting at home and doing that. What we normally do is we actually buy a lot more services than physical products. Mm -hmm. And obviously the service industry is not <laughs> as much of a thing as it was just because of COVID-19 and precautions and all of that. I'm not in the inflation is permanent camp like it felt yeah. like in the 70s, and some of it is psychological. I really think that inflation is being caused by supply chains being strained. It's not being caused by infrastructure money, billions and billions of dollars being pushed into the American economy because mm -hmm. inflation is going up everywhere, like Germany. Um, it's up more than here. 
And there's other places where they haven't even did COVID relief measures in in tons of, injected tons of money into the economy, and they're experiencing inflation. Mm-hmm. This is a global supply chain um, problem. Yeah. It's a shortage of goods, and it's a supply and demand issue. That's what it is. And it's going to go away at some point. I think it's not going to go away now. It's probably going to go away in the next six months, year, maybe two years. Mm-hmm. You know, It's going to take a while for supply chains to get it, but hopefully they figure it out in the off season after Christmas, hopefully. Um, but kind of circling back, I um, <laughs> I think that like it's frustrating to know that Biden is actually doing quite well in keeping a lot of his promises in terms of what his legislative agenda is. Obviously, we haven't hit all those yet things yet, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I think like the difference between his first like hundred days or three months or whatever between um, and. Uh, the difference between then and now, what, what it's been like nine months, eight months, something like that. Um, January to November. Back in the first 100 days, he was. it felt like he was doing something every day. He was signing executive orders. They got COVID relief passed pretty quick, honestly. Um, yeah, we knew it was coming. It just felt like that administration just hit the ground running and they're doing what they could. And then that all that stuff kind of started to fall out of the news a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now we're just in a place where it just feels like, oh, legislation in the Senate and Congress and negotiations and Joe Manchin says no and Democrats can't even get this shit done. How did they get COVID relief done in two months? And why is it taking eight months to do the rest of it? Like, that's the narrative. It's been the narrative for the last six months. (laughs) And um, it feels exhausting. Like, I'm a little exhausted thinking about it, even though we both know that this is somewhat how negotiations work in Congress. There's not, there's not that nuance of government, right? It's and not supposed people, to be fast. People aren't understanding that because we had a freaking tweeter in chief that tweeted every step of the process. So now we just get hit with these random op-eds from Joe Manchin, in the wall street journal, and we have no information from Joe Biden or anybody about what's actually happening behind the scenes at all times, just like we did when Trump was president, because he literally just tweeted what their conversation was all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand some of the frustration, but what's frustrating to me is that we're not giving like the benefit of the doubt. It's been eight months. You expected the whole world to be fixed in the first hundred days of Biden's presidency. We just have this really outsized expectation gravitas of like our politicians like Biden is still human, just like us. All the people that work in Congress, um, well, I mean, you could make an argument that some aren't quite that human. But <laughs> I was going to say Mitch McConnell is a turtle, so you are wrong. Yes, but I mean, like, like Lindsey Biden, Graham is a ladybug. It's <laughs> kind of funny. Biden <laughs> and and Harris aren't like we treat them like these these life size figures. We have these outsized expectations, and government doesn't work like that. And I'd argue. That out of everything they've done, they've done quite a lot, and it's barely been a year. Yeah. Compared to like Trump, who just sat there and tweeted the whole time. I mean, let's dive into that a little bit, too, because I do think you bring up a very great point of. This will probably be a part of my rant. I'm just going to drop it here. A lot has happened in this country (laughs) since January. (laughs) And. Mm -hmm we as a nation have not been allowed it or have not been allowed the opportunity to not only grieve, but also fully comprehend how much has happened. Uh, Like January 6th, January 6th, there was a legitimate insurrection on our home soil 
that could have very well led to one of the worst constitutional. Well, we haven't really had a constitutional crisis, depending on which historian you talk to. But one of the worst historic or constitutional crises um, this country would have ever faced because no one really knew what would have happened had they gotten a hold of the certificates for the election. No one really knew what would have happened, what could have happened with Ted Cruz objecting to it, because these were questions that our constitution was never expected to test. After that, we have a president who is impeached for the second time, nearly removed and well made ineligible to run again. And the only reason he was not is because the majority leader at the, well, the minority leader now um, at the time, stood up and said, he is guilty. However, the precedent of doing this is wrong. So like, there's that caveat. As we're dealing with that, we also have to own the fact that we were still in the midst of a surge during the COVID-19 pandemic. People hadn't been able to go home. If you're from the state of Michigan, like my family is, you just found out that there was a legitimate um, kidnap and assassination attempt on the governor and the FBI was involved. So you have all of these things that are happening in January. This new administration comes in and immediately vaccines are mass produced and being pushed out to states um, and traveling starting to come up. People are so ready to go back to normalcy that we just fall into it. But we ignore the fact that then all of a sudden gas prices almost touch $5 in Idaho we had shortages of nearly everything. People finally got the voice in the workforce to say, I'm not dealing with this mistreatment anymore. I'm going to quit my job, which caused another mass issue. There've just been so many human level crises, I would argue, that we haven't even processed. And then we're on top of this, evaluating an administration, an administration whose immediate priorities were COVID-19, climate, racial equity, economy, healthcare, immigration, and restoring America's global standing. So you want to think about all those pieces while in the back of your head, (laughs) it feels like this administration has been leading or has been in the office for longer than a few months. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, you know, when we talk about January 6th, like I actually don't even feel like I've reconciled with what happened. I absolutely haven't. I mean, like in the back of my head, I know that that's like one of the most serious things that's happened since like the civil war. But I am just feel so desensitized that I just like, don't even think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think about it as if it's a big deal, even though it is, it is a big deal. (laughs) And like, you know what else is a big deal? The, the COVID relief bill is a big deal. The bipartisan infrastructure is a big deal, but the way that our society operates with these things it's just like either you move on super fast from something that's a big deal or you don't talk about it like it is. And I don't know. I, I like I sit here and I, I think Biden has been a good president, but even I'm a little desensitized to how our media and narratives and all the stuff that we consume just moves on in no time at all. And how one side of the discourse just claims that nothing's real, you know, like true. I guess like, I don't know. I, how do you, how do you think that the, um, if we want to actually like kind of get to the root of the question after all this, uh, how do you think that like the Biden administration has done over the last eight months of their presidency? I think they took what they had and made it work. Right. They, 
you and I can sit and have this podcast right now, knowing that we are safe, knowing mm-hmm. that the communities that we're a part of one, because we built our own um, circles through the pandemic, but two, because there is an option available for individuals to take the appropriate steps to be safe. Mm-hmm. I also think about the fact that I remember vividly uh, September. Eh, no, it was a little bit before that. So July, August of 2020, when Boise State issued their furloughs as multiple institutions were cutting jobs because they could no longer afford to have people. And I remember seeing that 20 million number pop on the screen of how many people lost their jobs immediately due to this pandemic because restaurants had closed, because uh, organizations had to downsize. We've gained a lot of those back. (laughs) Our, Our unemployment rate is at, I should have looked this up before I started bringing it up. Look, I also want to like, I want to stipulate though, too, like we brought a lot of those back, but like, I truly believe that we are going to look back on this decade specifically and realize this is kind of when everything changed, when we really entered into a new era of what America is. Um, And what I mean by that is like, there's a lot of businesses, even chains out there that keep raising, they keep bumping up their wages. <laughs> They're starting mm-hmm. wages because they can't find people. Yet the market for jobs is really good. But a lot of us, especially the younger generations, kind of realized, hey, I don't need this. I don't need to be treated like shit at this shitty job. I don't need um, to work for $8 an hour mm-hmm. when I can't live on it. I know that I can do more than that. And like, it's causing businesses to raise their wages in some instances. Some instances, yeah. And like, I actually really think that if you say that the last, I don't know, 40-ish years has been the 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 corporations and the businesses have had all the power, I think that's beginning to shift back to labor and individual people that have all the power. And I think that, I just really think that this is like a kind of a economic switch that we're experiencing. And I don't know what it's going to look like in a few years from now, but I think it's going to look a hell of a lot different than what we were used to before the pandemic. Yeah. And thank you for helping me have time to look that up. But the unemployment rate is to the lowest it's been since March, 2020 pre pandemic. Like mm-hmm. it's those types of things where say what you will about media. I I don't inherently believe that they need to be propping up any administration if they have real reason yeah. to call them out 100%. But the fact that we've normalized this, not normalized, but the fact that we've desensitized a pandemic that we all lived through, the, the racial inequities that we all saw during the pandemic, but continue to have um, the Redenhouse case plastered mm. on television the Ahmaud Arbery case, we still talk about George Floyd. We don't talk about the fact that the unemployment rate is at 4.6. No, we don't that talk about the good That is a huge and mon- monumentous shift and very well articulated um, on your end. This, uh, this low rate is not because people were filling in in all of these McDonald's jobs at $7.25 an hour. McDonald's had to up their or up their salaries to $15. Some of them offer college subsidies. All of these benefits that should have inherently existed before mm-hmm. were forced to happen because the people were able to say like, no, I'm not dealing with this anymore. 
And I'm not crediting that to the administration, but the administration's ability to meet that first priority of understanding life can't be normal until the pandemic is at least in some sense contained matters in how we get to where we are and is important in understanding why I personally believe um, the administration has done well in several categories. I actually think I it's only been eight months and we have a long way to go, possibly eight years, but I think the administration has done quite well and they've already accomplished quite a lot. I mean, they've passed already a couple trillion dollars in like big spending plans that do help the American people out in big ways. But um, I do want to like, if I have one critique for them right now. You stole the words right out of my mouth. I was going to ask where they're lacking. Yeah, I think my one critique is like, I'm not asking media to talk about all the accomplishments and all the stuff, even though I think they should, but they really focus more on like, you know, well, it's the 24 hour news cycle. If they need they're going to focus on things. Yeah. They need the drama. They're going to focus on things that gets them more viewers. And that stuff is always kind of the more negative, but also quote unquote shocking stuff. So the try the, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is going on. We're going to focus on that. Every single show that we have for 24 hours straight, we're going to focus on this bad poll that Biden got after the bad elections 24 hours straight. And you know, they're going to do that. But, but here's, here's where the administration and honestly, overall the party lacks on is Republicans are really good at defining narratives and they're really good at getting the media to define, to talk about it more than Democrats are. And what I think Democrats in the Biden administration are lacking on is they have all of this awesome stuff that they have actually done for the American people that's not being talked about in the media. They need to find a way to break through into those spaces and let the media do the rest of the job for them. Republicans are good at it. We need to figure out how we can do that. And that's where I think the administration is lacking because if everybody else knew the unemployment rate, if everybody else knew a little bit more about how those bills will not affect inflation and the biggest reason why they won't affect inflation is because it's already paid for, by the way, Mm -hmm. Um, all those bills are already paid for. Um, Like if we imagine, imagine hearing that a little bit more than we do now in the 24 hour news cycle. I don't know how much different it would be, but I, I think we need to figure out how we can get our message across because we are historically bad at doing that. Yeah. And that's where I think it lacks on. And it, it's not that I don't dislike um, the things that the administration and the party actually says in some of their speeches and stuff. I think it's good messages. We just don't know how to get them to like in the mainstream media as much as Republicans do. Mm-hmm. And I understand some of the disadvantages. Fox News is basically the blowhorn for all of what Republicans new narrative is. Fox news needs to watch Netflix before they can start setting any kind of conversation around what <laughs> this country needs to hear. But I, I, I want to echo that point, right? Cause I was going to say, I think one of the areas of this administration is um, slacking in, if you will, is immigration. Mm-hmm. One, because it's super difficult and we need to own that. That was never a problem that was going to be fixed overnight, but I mean, I'll give them props to doing, trying to do some stuff, right? Like they had a plan right away and they tried to put stuff in this infrastructure, human infrastructure. Yeah, but the parliamentarian said no. But to that- Well, Joe Manchin would have said no too, let's be honest. (laughs) To that point though, NPR um, did a really good job of categorizing promises made by the administration um, and where they're at. One promise, introduce legislation for a pathway to citizenship for immigrants in the U- or for immigrants in the U.S. illegally. They accomplished that. Um, 
they accomplished establishing a task establishing a task force that would reunite children and parents separated at the border. They ended the executive order that banned travelers from some Muslim majority companies. They increased government supervision over the U.S. border um, and immigration agencies. And they've made efforts and made moves in stopping the migrant protection protocol and asylum uh, metering policy, defunding um, continued border wall construction. So there's all of these pieces, right, where Half of these I didn't completely know because they're not what we talk about right now. We're caught up in right. the the drama of is the bill going to pass? Is the bill not going to pass? We don't do the special highlights like we did under the Trump administration where every two days there was some news agency at the border showing this half constructed wall telling us what the problem is because the administration has done such a, a great job of keeping these promises, but also doing the work necessarily to necessary to better the country that 24 yeah. hour cycle just doesn't have time to keep up. Yeah. And it's like, it's like the media, like accomplishing one of your promises, isn't something that the media wants to talk about anymore. You have, it's not enough to be a good president. You have to do something outrageous now. Yeah. Anyways, uh, when we come back, we'll go through some tangents. Stay tuned. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. Okay, my tangent this week is uh, something I kind of mentioned earlier. I just find it super interesting, kind of sarcastic there, but I find it just super interesting that like we haven't heard about Kamala Harris since basically the last time we talked about her like six or seven months ago Don't because she got like a couple bad press stories for literally no reason at all. And now all of a sudden, like the only thing the media can talk about is like how much they hate each other how bad Kamala Harris is and how she's not going to be the successor to the party and all this stuff. And like, I, you know, I, it frustrates me because I just, you, you just didn't hear these things when like Joe Biden was vice president. Say it like it is. If she was a white man, we wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be fucking talking <laughs> about it. it. It's like, God damn guys. Holy shit. That's really all I have. I'm just fucking annoyed that the way we treat women in this country, especially women of color. What about you, Terrell? Take <laughs> us on a tangent. <laughs> um, to the surprise of all our viewers, my tangent's going to be really short. Um, and I kind of touched on it a little bit in our segment, but the Ahmad Aubrey and Rittenhouse case are currently being shown legitimately everywhere. And for all those Americans who believe that we're in a post-race world, for all those Americans who believe that color doesn't matter, who believes that there's no such thing as white privilege, I just ask you to look in a mirror, America genuinely look in a mirror as we go through these cases and the way that some of y'all are reacting to these cases, calling a man who legitimately murdered three people a hero who is doing the Lord's work and um, supporting three men who chased down an African-American in his own neighborhood and arrested him only to kill him because he was black. Just take a look in the mirror and really, really think about what your post-racial world looks like versus the, I have a dream speech that you all love to quote. I think that's our show. 
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes each week. I'm Terrell. I'm Caleb. And we are Dangerously Likely to see you next week. Thank you.